Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 11, Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Father, we thank you for a chance to be together this morning to worship you, to honor your son, Jesus Christ, to experience the ministry of your Holy Spirit at work among us. And we just ask even now that you take away those things that would hinder or distract or keep us from hearing everything that your voice is wanting and even needing to say to us through this portion of the word of God. So Lord, every reason behind why your spirit inspired these things originally, we pray this morning that you would speak now through what you've already spoken in the word of God and that your spirit would say things to us that would help us in our relationship with you. Bless your word, we ask together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, certain things we call at times the essentials. When you look up the word essential, it's defined in this way, that which is extremely important, that which is absolutely necessary and can't be done without. And in the Christian life and in Christian teaching or doctrine, the resurrection is absolutely essential. It is one of the non-negotiables, the absolute truths of the Christian faith. And this is what our passage is addressing for us today, the crucial foundational truth that there is indeed such a reality as the resurrection from the dead. And that Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who walked among us 2,000 years ago as a man, being God in human flesh, not only predicted that he would die as he did sacrificially, but he also predicted that on the third day he would rise from the dead. And thanks be to God, he did that. He rose back from the realm of the dead. And that is absolutely essential both to our spiritual lives as well as to our eternal hope. And this is what Paul was trying to drive home in this section of 1 Corinthians 15, that everything hinges upon the resurrection. You take the resurrection out and everything disassembles and falls apart. Now understand, and this is important as we continue to go through chapter 15, which is a chapter that gives great amounts of teaching on the subject of the resurrection. When we talk about resurrection, we're not just describing life after death. And a lot of times when we hear the word resurrection, that's kind of just where our mind goes to life after death or living beyond death. 
and maybe even dwelling in a spirit form. Rather, the biblical explanation of resurrection is that not only life after death, but that these present earthly bodies will actually be powerfully transformed. That these earthly bodies we have now will be supernaturally changed into a glorified state, an eternal body, in which we will then live in forever beyond this present existence. Paul says this in Philippians 3 regarding that. He says, our citizenship is in heaven from which we are eagerly waiting for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, listen, who will transform our lowly body or earthly body, he says, that it may be conformed into his glorious body or changed in the same way that Jesus now has a glorified resurrection body. And we'll talk more about how that happens later in the chapter. But in this section, Paul is just wanting to press home the absolute necessity, the utter importance of resurrection, that resurrection from the dead is a reality both for Christ as well as for us, because all other doctrines are really built upon that very thing. And if you remove that, everything disassembles. So we have to firmly believe that Christ is risen from the dead and that we too, the Bible says, one day shall share in the same. Likewise. Now the backdrop, remember, Paul in chapter 15 as he began has just supplied some really great evidence for the reality that Christ has risen back from the realm of the dead. We saw in our prior verses that he was proving the credibility of Jesus's resurrection by saying, look, there are numerous amounts of eyewitness individuals who you can, uh, you know, you can interview them, you can interrogate them. Paul said, you know, all these different individuals he referenced. And then he said, even currently at one point, over 500 people together saw Christ was raised from the dead. And he said, many of them are still alive to this day. You can go search them out, ask them about their eyewitness testimony. And Paul was giving great amount of examples to prove with validity this testimony that Christ was alive and that many had seen him and had experiences with him in his resurrection form. Now, as Paul progresses in the chapter, he starts to address the importance of the resurrection and why it is absolutely so essential that we believe that and trust in that for many reasons. Paul begins by reminding them of the origin of their very spiritual lives when the church was planted there. Look with me in verse 11. He says, therefore, whether it was I, Paul the apostle, or they, Peter, James, John, others who saw the resurrected Christ, he said, so we preach and so you believe. So he begins by reminding of the origin of their spiritual life and how it was rooted in the very fact of believing that Christ had risen from the dead. Paul and others had preached this message. All Christians who were living at that time bore witness to this reality. They proclaimed not only that Jesus died on the cross to make a sacrificial payment and suffer in our place for the punishment of our sins, but they also continued to proclaim as well that Jesus had risen back from the dead on the third day and that he had conquered death that he had defeated the grave, triumphed over hell and over the devil in his resurrection. And so he reminds the church here in verse 11 that this is what they originally heard and it's what they originally believed and that this was the very foundation of their salvation to their soul, that they had called upon the name, listen, of a risen Lord. 
that they didn't believe upon a person who was dead and have hopeful, wishful thinking that it would do something for their souls spiritually and eternally, but that they had called upon the name of a living Lord, a risen Savior who was alive and who could exercise his power to forgive their sins, to change their hearts, to give them the gift of eternal life. Paul says in Romans 10, he says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it's confessing with your mouth that you are saved. So what Paul's emphasizing to them here in verse 11 as he transitions into this next section is Paul's reminding them, look, you began really well there in Corinth. We preached to you that Christ was alive from the dead. You, you firmly believed that Jesus Christ had resurrected from the dead. And the problem is the church was now being infiltrated with ideas from the system of the world. And so ideologies and mindsets of an unsaved world system were now creeping their way into the church, reasonings of men, and they were starting to undermine core doctrines of scripture that God's people had believed. So what Paul does here, you might fairly say in this next section, is he kind of digs his heels in spiritually. And he basically says, look, I don't care what the world's philosophers are saying. I don't care what they're saying out there in the world. This is the church. And we believe the word of God. We don't take our cues and our ideas and our philosophies and ways of thinking from what the world is saying, we believe sound doctrine of the authentic Christian faith that the word of God gives to us. And so Paul here kind of digs in his heels. And in verse 12, he says, look, he says, now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, and indeed Christ had always been preached as one who had raised from the dead as God's savior. Paul says, so if Christ is preached that he's raised from the dead, here's his first question. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So Paul here in verse 12 starts to identify the problem that was happening amongst the church at Corinth. There were some there amongst the church who were saying there is no such thing as resurrection from the dead. Or can't we just believe in Jesus without having this resurrection thing? Isn't that sufficient? Is it really necessary for the Christian life to believe that that actually happened? And where this was stemming from, understand, Corinth is located in a very Greek culture. And the Greek culture and philosophical thinkers of that day, understand, they accepted the immortality of the soul. Greeks believed in the immortality or, or, you know, of the soul in some you know, immaterial state that a person would just live forever, whether it was in some idea of a reincarnation or you floated around in a ghostly experience. They believed in the immortality of the soul, but they scoffed at the idea of the resurrection and the transformation of an earthly body into a glorified state. They believed in an immaterial existence in some ethereal spiritual realm. So they mocked the idea of a physical resurrection. And listen, part of the reason for that thinking was to justify their desires to indulge all their fleshly passions. And where this stemmed from is they taught that the spirit of a man was essentially good. Everyone's heart is essentially good. The problem is that everything that's material and physical in the world, including the body, that's evil. And so the spirit of a man and the body of a man, they really aren't even interconnected and the body's not gonna last forever. 
And as long as your heart's pure, as long as your heart's sincere, as long as your heart is good, it doesn't matter what you do with your body because your body's not going to last forever. So therefore, Paul's going to say later in the chapter, you could eat, drink, pursue passion, indulge your flesh because the problem was the flesh. And the flesh didn't matter long term. And you're not going to have to give account for anything that was done in your body because your body, we all know, is evil but it's your heart that's good. And as long as your heart is good, and basically what they created for themselves was just a religious loophole to give justification for indulging all manner of sinful passions. It was just a religious loophole that, hey, you can do whatever you want in your body. You're not accountable for all the selfish, evil, wrong things you do in your body. And you're not gonna give account for that because one day your body will just perish and you're good sincere spirit because you're good at heart it will just live forever and float around in some ethereal realm and it was just a justification as i said for men to be able to do whatever they want and to deny the concept of a literal resurrection gave them no sense of accountability to answer to god in an afterlife well paul knowing this greek thinking was destructive in Acts 17 when paul went to athens which was a very greek location Paul spoke to the people in, in Athens, Greece, who were thinking this way, that were very immoral. He said these very words. He said, God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times. But now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him. For he has set a day for judging the world with justice. Listen, by the man whom he has appointed and he proved to everyone who this was by raising him from the dead. And it tells us in Acts 17, when they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, that they scoffed and laughed in contempt because they, they didn't want to hear that. Because Paul was saying, listen, there is resurrection from the dead. And the very one who's going to judge your soul eternally, he's risen from the dead and he's alive. And you're going to stand face to face before a living judge someday. Jesus, who was the savior, the Bible says, also is therefore appointed as the ultimate judge of mankind. Now, sadly, the world's philosophers and moral ideas of natural men had been embraced by the church. Sound familiar? Well, the, the, the church should take its cues from the world. And so whatever the world's saying and the ideas of the world and the philosophies of natural men and as a result, some were denying the resurrection that it even was necessary or even had existed. And so Paul seeks to indicate, listen, how utterly devastating that was. Look what he says as he goes on in verse 13. Here's his first point. He says, look, if there is no resurrection of the dead, first problem, then Christ is not risen. <laughs> Paul says, if we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, and we use that as an excuse to just indulge sinful passions, it's not just selfish. He said it is utterly destructive to the entire gospel message. It completely disrupts everything for our eternal destiny because he says if the dead don't rise from the dead, then that means that Jesus Christ himself is not risen because Jesus lived as a man, he died on the cross, and he's saying if the dead don't raise, then that means that Jesus is not alive. It means that Jesus' body is rotting in a grave. He died on the cross, and everything ended there. There was no victory. 
There was no accomplishment. There was nothing that was defeated spiritually. Denying the resurrection means that Jesus was completely defeated. And like every other religious leader, he's laying dead in a grave and he's gone forever, which means he's not currently alive today to help anyone, to assist in any way or to save any soul with his power. That's why Paul says, verse 14, and if Christ is not risen, he says, here's the application, then our preaching is empty. And your faith, he says, is also empty. So he shows if we discard the resurrection and we deny the fact that Jesus is even therefore alive, then Paul says, first of all, verse 14, he says, then any preaching that I or anyone else does about Jesus, he says, it's completely empty of any benefit. All of our preaching and everything that we proclaim, he says, it's utterly in vain. It has no value. It's not even good news. He's going to say later on, it's actually the greatest lie in human history. He says it, it takes away all the benefit. Why would people proclaim a message that's completely worthless? We would be telling people to come to Jesus and to serve Jesus when it's completely useless to do so because he's not aware of anything that we're doing. He's not going to hold us to account for anything we do or don't do. He's not going to help us in any way. Paul says our preaching would become a meaningless message. It would be an absolute waste of breath. Every sermon that has been taught for all of human history of Christian doctrine basically was an absolute waste of time. Every message that's been spoken, every sermon that's been preached, every Bible study that's been given from pulpits to living rooms to everywhere, Paul says it's all worthless. It all amounts to absolutely nothing. It would all be complete emptiness. And Paul says, if that's not enough, he says there as well. Also, he says, our very faith, that is our trust and dependence in what Jesus did for us, he says, your faith as well is also empty. Why? Because trust in a dead person is worthless. A dead person can do nothing to assist someone, right? When their life has ceased, they no longer can offer any power, or any assistance to anyone. So he says, if we're trusting with faith and confidence in a dead Messiah, he says, that's completely useless. Think about it. That means every prayer that has ever been prayed to the Lord never was heard. That means every time we sing in worship to the Lord, we're just singing into the air, worthless, meaningless breaths of air. And it does absolutely nothing because Jesus is dead. He doesn't even hear it. He says, that means that Jesus, if he's not alive from the dead, he's not returning for you. You're just going to struggle here until the day you die and everything's lost when you die anyway. And he says, this begins to break down everything. Jesus would be nothing other than just like every other dead religious figure of history who may have done or said a few good things in his time, but ultimately his life came to an end and now he is just laying in a grave and can't offer any help at all. Because as Jesus isn't alive, what's the purpose, think of it, of even living in a way to seek to please the Lord? I don't know about you this last week. I didn't do perfect, but I sought to please the Lord because I actually believe he's alive and paying attention to my life. And so I live in a way to try and honor him and gain his approval and his acceptance. But if he's not alive, he doesn't even know what you're doing. He doesn't even care what you're doing. Why bother to try and do what's good or right or helpful or servant-hearted or loving? There's nobody even paying attention to anything that you're doing. 
Why bother reading your Bible? He doesn't care if you read your Bible. He's not alive. Why bother trying to make good decisions rather than bad decisions? Again, everything begins to completely disassemble. Paul says this is the most negative, horrible, pessimistic outlook any person could have. And, and why lean upon Jesus or have faith that somehow his power can help or assist? He says, because if he's not alive, none of it matters. If Jesus isn't alive, you should have stood home this morning and let your kids watch cartoons. You should have went outside in the humid weather and just gardened all morning long or went to the beach early. If Jesus isn't alive, why bother coming to a midweek service? You might as well stay home and watch American Idol. I mean, there's, there's no purpose, is what Paul's saying. Everything becomes worthless and vain if Jesus is not alive. Thankfully, we know from the word of God, the Bible says he is alive. And that's what makes all the difference. But Paul's saying you can't remove this because you remove anything of value to the Christian existence. If that weren't a love, Paul gets a little bit more negative for us. Interested in more negativity? Verse 15, he says, yes, and we, apostles, pastors, teachers, Paul's saying, we are all found, even fellow Christians who testify of Christ, we're all found, look what he says, false witnesses of God. Because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ. Whom, if he did not raise up, if in fact, he says, the dead do not rise. So another problem, if there's no resurrection, it would make Paul, it would make Peter and James and John and all the apostles. It would make every pastor and teacher and evangelist through human history. It would make all of you and I as Christians, it would make us all what? Horrible liars. Paul says we're false witnesses. If the dead don't rise and Jesus wasn't raised after dying on the cross, he says, we're proved to be false witnesses. Paul says, we are guilty of telling people horrible lies that we're just going around and lying to everyone. And again, Paul says here in verse 15, again, very emphatically, he says, look, we have as not only spiritual leaders, but all of us as Christians, we have what testified to other people, not just that Jesus died on the cross for sins, but what do we also tell people that he's raised from the dead? He says, this is what we're telling people. You know, I encourage you, read the book of Acts sometime in the near future and take notice how in all the sermons of Peter and Stephen and Paul, how there's constant reference, clear reference to Christ being alive from the dead. They don't just preach the cross. They also preach the fact that Jesus is alive from the dead. But if Christ is not risen and the dead don't rise, that would make the apostles who were seen as good and godly men, that would make them the greatest deceivers in human history for the last 2,000 years, right? That would mean that Martin Luther was a liar. It would mean that Spurgeon and Moody were great deceivers. It would mean that Billy Graham is a liar. It would mean, honestly, that I spend my life every week coming up with lies to deceive you every time you show up at church. And then you come back every week because you like being lied to. That's what it would mean. Paul says this would be the reality. This is why, you know, so many men and women, you know, have, which is the, the, the antithesis of this very reality. He says, then why would so many men and women give of their lives to something? Why would they spend time raising their children a certain way and proclaiming to their friends and relatives and coworkers and even be willing to suffer greatly and some through human history even die as martyrs? 
if it's all a lie? Why would you do all that for a lie, Paul's saying? It would be completely contradictory. Again, Paul comes back to this idea of the same logic to reason this out. He emphasizes verse 16. He says, for if the dead do not rise, again, he says, then Christ is not risen. Verse 17, and if Christ is not risen, he says, your faith is futile. And then worse, he says, that means you and I, all of us, we are still in our sins. That word futile there means to be without power. It's a different word than emptiness. It means to have no potential to succeed or achieve something. So what Paul's saying in verse 17 here is if Jesus is not alive, then we are all still trapped in our sin. Nothing's changed. We're all still trapped in our sin. Your faith in Jesus Christ would be unable to secure for you the forgiveness of sins. You would still be stuck. I would still be stuck under the wrath of God for the guilt of our sin. Because see, the Bible teaches that Jesus's resurrection, not just his crucifixion, the Bible teaches also that his resurrection is what gives to us the assurance of the forgiveness of our sins. It gives us the assurance of the righteous standing we have before God. That when Jesus died in our place on the cross in a substitutional way when he sacrificed, Jesus died, and remember what he said? He said what? It is finished, paid in full. And the Father in heaven decided to say, amen. Do you know how he did that? He raised Jesus from the dead. That was the Father's amen to say when Jesus said, it is finished, Jesus raised him from the, or the Father raised him from the dead as a way to validate his approval of the finished work of how Jesus died in our place on the cross. That, that when Jesus died in that manner, the father showed his complete acceptance by raising him back from the dead. Romans 4 declares it this way. It says, righteousness shall be imputed or deposited or given to those who believe in Jesus, who he raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Jesus was delivered up or delivered to death because of our offenses or sins. Listen, but he was raised up because of our justification. That is to give to us a justified basis that we are now righteous. His very resurrection is essential to the forgiveness of our sins. Paul says in Romans 5, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, he says, how much more having already been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? See, it's the reality of the continuing life of Jesus Christ because he's raised back from the dead and ascended back into heaven and is alive at the right hand of the Father that assures us our salvation is secure. For only as Jesus lives as an eternal, risen, living, resurrected Savior, can he continue to secure our salvation? That's why Hebrews chapter 7 says that, that those who come to God through Jesus, he's able to save to the uttermost. The idea is all the way out to the end. He's able to save to the uttermost, and then it says this, because he always lives to make intercession on their behalf. Because every time I failed this week, every time you failed this last week, every time we fail next week, the devil, as the accuser of the brethren, wants to condemn us for our sin. 
And Jesus being alive in heaven because he's risen from the dead is our advocate there in the eternal realm to defend us as our righteous you know, defender to say, yes, that is true, but I am here to proclaim that he is righteous because everything I did was fully complete and he has come to me and called upon me to save him and I've saved him. And, give, and Jesus is there as our advocate to intercede for us, to continue to proclaim our security. Romans 8 says it this way, who then will condemn us? Don't answer that. It probably happened this week. Who will condemn us? No one, the Bible says, for Christ died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting at the place of honor at God's right hand, interceding for us or pleading for us. Jesus is there doing that this morning. That's why Paul disputes so strongly as he does here in verse 16 to say, but look, if the dead don't rise, then Christ isn't alive doing that. And if Christ isn't alive doing that, he says, then your faith in him for the forgiveness of your sins is futile. It's powerless. It does nothing for you. And he says, you're still stuck in your sins. You are still under the wrath of God. You're still living under the judgment of God. So if Christ isn't risen, our faith is unable to secure us forgiveness of sins, but it's also unable to secure for us the power to overcome sin. Because again, the Bible teaches that comes through the resurrection, the power to overcome sin. We'd all still be stuck living as slaves to the ruling power of sin over our lives. There'd be no ability to ever change as a person. Romans 6, 7, and 8 teach us very clearly that it's the resurrection power of Jesus being alive that helps us supernaturally to break out of the cycle of sin, to overcome the slavery of sin from dominating our lives and to have victory. Paul says it this way in Romans 6, we were buried with Jesus through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we shall walk in newness of life. The idea is we are able through his resurrected power, giving us strength to live in a new way. I know that was my Christian experience. That I discovered not only am I forgiven, but I've now experienced freedom. I can live in a new way now. Because the power of a living Lord gives me the strength supernaturally to do that. He says in Romans 6, we know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power to rule in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. See, this is essential what the resurrection supplies, not just pardon for the penalty and punishment of your sin, but the power to overcome sin from ruling your life and, and keeping you in the same way that you've lived forever. In Romans 8, Paul talks about how the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is now living in you as a Christian. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies. And he says, so sin doesn't have to have dominion over you anymore. You can live in a different way. It's that reality of Christ conquering the power of sin that gives us the ability to conquer and overcome sin ourselves. And again, this is why Paul is emphasizing here in verses 16 and 7 saying, look, if Christ is not risen, your faith in Christ's power to help you to live differently, your confidence or reliance that Jesus who conquered sin 
can liberate you from sin and help you to live differently and overcome life-dominating habits or sinful struggles, he says, it's completely futile. It's all lost. He says there would be no ability to do that. Because why? A dead person, as I said earlier, can't help people. A dead person can't help people. So if Jesus is not alive, then Jesus can't assist me. I am hopelessly trapped as a slave to all my sinful desires. I am stuck. I'll never be able to change. I'd never be able to live differently. The drug addict would never be able to be able to overcome addiction to drugs. The pervert would never be able to be delivered from perversion and actually live straight and pleasing to the Lord. The person who's selfish or bitter or angry or struggles with lying or gambling, pick your poison. They would be stuck living in that and there never would be the opportunity to receive power from another that's stronger than you to give you the ability to say, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I may struggle with the temptation to sin, but it doesn't rule me anymore. It doesn't have to control me anymore because someone conquered sin's power and that someone dwells in me now. He's alive and he's able to help me and empower me to live differently. So Paul says, this is an absolute crucial thing. He goes on verse 18 to say, and then also as well, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. So another thing Paul identifies if Christ is not risen is all those who have died trusting in Jesus Christ in the past, they've not obtained something better. Paul says, verse 18, they've just perished. They've just perished. Now, when the Bible speaks here in verse 18 of those who have fallen asleep in Christ, this is a biblical euphemism that the Bible uses to picture the death of the believer. It's just a picture of falling asleep. When someone lays down to sleep, they appear to be peacefully resting. However, they're still very much alive and they're going to rise back up from sleep and they're going to continue to live onward. Well, this is the picture that the Bible gives of the death of a believer. The picture of the death of a Christian is that our body is, yes, temporarily laid to rest, but that person, though their body is laying resting, they're still very much alive. They're still very much alive and they've entered into the presence of the Lord. Paul says to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, that to be absent from the body, the physical frame, is to be present with the Lord. It's to be with Christ still living. What's more is that body will one day rise again and be resurrected and transformed to be joined with the eternal spirit. And we shall live in this resurrected bodily existence forever and ever. However, if resurrection is all a myth, if it's all a lie and it doesn't happen, then Christians who've died, Paul says, they've just been lost forever. They never made it to heaven. Their whole life putting confidence that there was something beyond the grave, hope and glory and entering into the presence of Jesus and the Father in heaven. It was all a cruel joke. They never made it. They found out when their death came that it was all a false premise and they went from suffering in this life and sacrificing for Jesus and trying to please Jesus and honor Jesus and looking forward to the day when they would not only be freed from the penalty of their sin and the power of sin, but that one day they would be freed from the presence of sin. And they wouldn't be sick anymore, suffer anymore, deal with the hardships of this life. He says, it's all a cruel cruel joke. It was a false premise. They've just perished. They're just lost. And we're never going to see them again. 
There'll never be a reunion because they didn't go into the presence of the Lord. Their life just ended. And Paul says, in light of this, verse 19, therefore, look what he says. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, if only in this life, he says, we as Christians are of all men the most pitiable. Paul drives his point home in verse 19, says if the only hope we have of serving Jesus Christ is just for this present life existence, you can almost sense Paul's asking here, why would any person really want to be a Christian? It would be the most pitiable reason to live. It would be the biggest joke in human history. Why would a Christian in this life deny themselves the pleasures of sin and temptation when it's hard? is for me anyway, to resist being bad sometimes. To resist being mean or jerky or selfish or, you know, why would we deny that and seek to walk in victory and walk in love and, and be, you know, unselfish? Why would we bother to make good decisions that please God when everybody mocks us for the way that we live? Why would we make the efforts that we do to, you know, serve the Lord and be a follower of Christ? Paul says, if it's all for nothing and the grave is just the end, he says that would be the most pitiable person on planet earth that they gave up all those things for absolutely nothing if there's no giving account to the lord after this life if there's no hope of glory if there's no confidence that there is a reward that we're going to hear well done thou good and faithful servant and enter into the joy of the lord he says people should look upon us paul says the most pitiable people who ever walked the planet We followed a cruel joke and we believed a horrible lie that's been fake news for 2,000 years. And we all bought into it. Millions of people who have lived and served and honored Jesus and sacrificed for Christ and worshiped Jesus, he said it would mean we've all wasted our time. It was an all absolute waste of time. Why would any rational thinking person, Paul says, do that? Why? What rational thing? I mean, that would be the worst miserable investment and exchange any person could make. Paul says, why would a person do such a thing? Yet history shows what? That millions of people for the last 2,000 years have been serving Jesus and honoring Jesus and making great sacrifices for Jesus and looking for ways to worship the Lord and honor the Lord and please the Lord and even die for the Lord. Why? Because it's not a joke. That's why Paul concludes in verse 20. He says, but, finally gets to some good news, right? But now Christ, Paul declares confidently, is risen from the dead and has become, he says, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The reason, Paul declares, is Jesus is alive. One translation renders this, but in fact, Christ is has been raised from the dead, and he is the first of a greater harvest of all who have lived. See, the reality is we know with confidence that Christ is alive from the dead, and that is why it's all worth it. That's why the sacrifices that you have made as a Christian throughout your life, every one of them has been worth it. That's why reading your Bible does matter. That's why praying does matter because Jesus is alive and he hears everything that you say to him. That's why it does matter to sing and to express worship and praise to the Lord because Jesus is alive and he's listening and he's smiling 
And he's being pleased and honored as he watches us do this on his behalf, living by faith in a world that's rejecting him and rejecting us. That's why it does matter that you raise your kids different than everybody else raises their kids. That's why it does matter that you take a stand for purity and things that matter. It's why it does matter that you stand for righteousness or you look for ways to let your life be useful for Jesus and serve the Lord rather than just living a self-serving existence. He says, because Christ is alive. That's the fact, Paul says. And he says, the greatest news is it's not just in this life. He says there, verse 20, in the conclusion of, he says, and Jesus, having risen, has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, the first fruits refer to, in the Bible, the first fruit or first produce that springs forth of the total harvest. This is an idea from the Old Testament, Paul's fooling. The idea is the first fruit was always the earliest or initial part of the harvest, which encouraged the farmer or the harvester that a fuller harvest was going to follow afterwards. That was just the first fruits of things that were still yet to come. So they would often take the first fruits and they would offer it even unto God as a thankful offering as a way of saying, thank you for these first fruits, which also assure me that there's a further greater harvest that's still yet to come afterwards. And so this is what the first fruits meant in regards to their mindset, looking forward to what was coming still. And Paul says here, using this spiritual analogy, he says, Jesus's resurrection, he says, it was the first of a new order spiritually of resurrection that's coming. Jesus was just the first fruits. He living as a man in an earthly body, just like you and I having died, he is the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead, a literal bodily resurrection in a glorified physical body that he lives in for all of eternity. And we are now God's eternal harvest as God continues to gather more of the harvest into heaven. And every one of us will continue to be raised as a follower of Christ in like manner, whether through death or whether through the rapture when Jesus returns his resurrection is the first phase of many more resurrections to follow again can i remind you what paul said in philippians 3 we read it earlier for our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for the savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body listen We folks have to be very careful, even as they did in the days of Corinth in the Greek culture, that we do not let ideas of the world infiltrate the church and start programming our mindset. We have the truth. We have the word of God. And let me just go so further to say this. The truth that we've been believing, the traditional values that we hold have been around a whole lot longer than all the new ideas of perversity and ridiculousness that's being propagated in our culture right now. So don't let people begin to bully you into silence and fear that somehow you are wrong or evil or racist or bigoted or whatever to say, this is what I believe. No, what I've believed has been around a lot longer than what you just came up with. And it's actually been the basis of family and human civilization and a peaceful society. What you are trying to propagate through critical race theory and all these other ideas, what you're trying to propagate is a inward war and division among people who don't want to be divided. 
And what you're trying to do is teach young people that they should automatically all hate one another or consider themselves victims or feel bad about who they are so that there will be a deconstruction of family and society and culture. No, no, no. Sorry, we already have the truth. And if there's anywhere that that needs to be upheld, it needs to be upheld in the church. We should not be buying into the ideas that the world is propagating and beginning to believe those things or be bullied in fear into accepting those mindsets and then letting them infiltrate our families and our values in the way that we are. If there's anybody that needs to be some salt and light in the culture, it's us. And I'm not saying, as I said last week, that we need to be antagonistic or mean or nasty or controversial, but to have an honest heart-to-heart conversation and communicate with people and say, look, you're free to believe that, but I don't. And I don't have to apologize for what I, I, this is America. You are free to believe what you want to believe, but that also means I'm free to believe what I want to believe. And to be able to continue to live in that is what is absolutely essential. We have to hold fast to the confession of our hope. The Bible says Hebrews without wavering, without wavering so that we can be effective in a world that needs to hear the truth. People want to hear the truth. I assure you this, young people want to hear the truth more than they want to keep hearing a bunch of nonsense and lies. They're looking for the truth. They're hungry for the truth. And whether it is essential doctrines of resurrection and the, you know, the finished work of Christ and the authority of Scripture, beyond that, just the crazy ideas our world is propagating, we have to be very, very careful. Look how Paul concludes this chapter, verse 58. What does Paul say? Great exhortation as we conclude this morning. He says, in light of all these things, therefore, my beloved brethren, be what? Steadfast, immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because Jesus is alive. Knowing, therefore, if Jesus is alive, what? Your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Our Jesus is alive. He sees it matters to him. Let's live in that reality and that mindset. Let's stand together.